Welcome to part two of our interview with Ambassador Susan Page, our country's first ambassador to South Sudan, the world's newest country. Thank you, Ambassador. And now sort of going into sort of, I guess, a scary experience that you faced when you were ambassador. In late uh, 2013, just over a year after the Benghazi consulate attack, your own embassy in Juba began evacuating U.S. personnel in response to to the deteriorating situation in the country. Fears that this conflict could lead to another Benghazi-style attack on the American presence, and why did you feel that it was important for you to remain in Juba as embassy staff were being evacuated? So we actually had a very big discussion with all the senior policymakers, um, you know, State Department secretaries, secretaries of state, defense, um, FBI, CIA. I mean, you know, everybody that you can think of. Um, and um, we had to decide whether or not we should actually close the embassy. So not just evacuate people, but close altogether until there was a better security situation. Um, it was only after Benghazi happened that we, um, the State Department decided to um, ramp up our security um, with Marines and, and whatnot, because we for quite some time, we, you know, it was a new embassy and we, we didn't have uh, very many Marines. They augmented our Marine force. And then um, I and um, the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs with, you know, numerous other people um, and the Secretary of State, et cetera, we wrote a number of decision memos saying the reasons why we believed it was important not to close the embassy. And a large part of it was because we had been so engaged and so involved in supporting the right to self-determination for the people of Southern Sudan, um, their right to um, independence or secession, um, and had played such an instrumental role in um, the peace process that led to ultimately the creation of South Sudan, that we believe that if we close the embassy, it would, everyone else would close. It would just be an indication that we were, um, we had no faith in the country and everyone would just see it as a free for all. And we believe that it would be better if we stayed and could offer um, at least some support to the population that we were not leaving them, that we were going to stay and that we were going to be monitoring the situation from on the ground, but with a smaller staff. So um, I was very much a proponent of that approach, uh, along with um, our assistant secretary at the time, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who was incredibly supportive. And um, that was the direction that, that we went in. So I put a lot of people on planes and um, charter flights. Uh, and the State Department was excellent um, from the, you know, the um, Secretary for uh, Deputy Secretary, under, sorry, Undersecretary for Management, um, and making all of these resources available. We had help from our military based in Djibouti to help us with the evacuation. Um, And it was really a matter of, was I going to be allowed to keep certain staff? And that's what I had to argue for, that I didn't want it so small that I didn't at least have a military presence to help, given the fact that it was now, you know, an actual civil war. 
So it was, um, I, we never worried that there would be some sort of an actual attack on our compound. I never worried about that. Um, but we were in a precarious location because we backed up onto the airport, which is right near um, the UN, one of the UN major base compounds. And people were, you know, moving and trying to take shelter and did take shelter um, at the UN. And so we could see the people walking towards the UN compound. And there were some, some things that did occur, but we weren't really worried that, you know, the um, government or the opposition would try to destroy our embassy or attack us. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, so, you know, the Civil War ended uh, and there has been a relative peace in the country, uh, right? So they have a, a peace deal that was signed fairly recently. Um, and so, I, just if you could kind of comment on what you kind of view as the outcome in South Sudan, will this peace remain um, or will the country kind of dive back into conflict? Um, I don't agree really that. Um that the conflict has ended. Um, they signed a peace agreement in 2018. And one of the problems that I see is that they are selectively implementing the peace agreement. So this is exactly what happened in the earlier peace agreement in 2016, where um, the US and other international actors encouraged uh, Riyak Mashar to rejoin the government, even if all of the security arrangements were not in place. And under extreme pressure, he did. Um, but we have never really helped the South Sudanese in recent days to address the real issues that are causing so many of the problems. Um, you know, there is... Basically, there's no room for um, uh, civil society, women. Um, there, there's very little actual dialogue happening. Once again, we, we, and I say we, but you know, there are lots of pressures. The neighbors, um, neighboring countries, sort of insisted once again that okay we have a deadline. And so they focus on deadlines of forming a, a transitional government of national unity, even though the agreement has specific things that are supposed to happen before the formation of a government of national unity. So even if we think about some of the things that have happened, um, even before they formed the, um, the new transitional government, um, Taban Dengai, the then first vice president, was sanctioned by the United States. Um, and the Department of Treasury, Office of Foreign Assets Control, this was on January 8th, so uh, a month before they formed the, the transitional government. They sanctioned, uh, OFAC sanctioned the first VP um, for his involvement in serious human rights abuses including the disappearance and deaths of civilians and some in particular. And this is what our own U.S. government, Treasury Department said. 
Tiban Dengai has acted to divide and sow distrust within the, within the Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition and the broader New Era community, which has extended the conflict in South Sudan and de deteriorated the reconciliation and peace process. And I'm just, gonna, I'm just reading from this because I think it's important. They went on and said the government of South Sudan's refusal to create political space for dissenting voices from opposition parties, ethnic groups, civil society, or media has been a key factor in the country's inability to implement a peace agreement and the ongoing acts of violence against civilians. So that was in January of this year. And in February, one month later, they create this new transitional government of national unity, swear in uh, five vice presidents, and so now we're at peace. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Um, nothing has fundamentally changed except you have a larger government and you still have ongoing conflict, um, including violations of the ceasefire agreement. So, um, okay, let's, even if we take the proposition that the civil war has ended, there's still a lot of fighting going on, um, and there's a lot of intercommunal violence going on, and intercommunal violence. So it's not necessarily one group against a subgroup of its own um, ethnicity, but in, uh, once again, in Jungle State, we have a lot of violence from the Dinka and the New Era communities against the Merlay. These were some of the exact same things that were happening in the lead up to the Civil War. So, um, I no, I don't see this as working. They have not um, created a unified national army. Um, the government and the opposition are doing everything that they can to either try to boost their status um, under the um, under the ceasefire arrangements and the um, trying to come up with a unified uh, national army, um, but it's not working. And so I don't know what kind of government you have when you have no legislate, legislative body in place. They have not been put into place. Um, the governors uh, are still being disputed. So yeah, you can say you have a cabinet and therefore there's, they're following the peace agreement, but that's extremely selective. And um, I don't think that that's what is going to bring real peace. Thank you, Ambassador. And I mean, that answer just sort of illustrates the delicate, complicated, and of course, very serious nature of peacemaking. And well, how specific and detailed and delicate it is. But sort of before we wrap up the interview, I wanted to touch a bit on your time with the United Nations. So you've held high ranking positions at the UN. What was the transition like between US diplomacy and the United Nations? And what did the United Nations mission mean to you? Um, so I want to go back for just one second before we end the South Sudan portion. And, and I apologize for this, but I, I, I wanted to um, make it clear also some of the blunders that were made, um, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think some of the, um, some of the problems that were not addressed um, were 
the preparations for the elections in 2010. So first of all, the election was supposed to have been held earlier than that under the CPA. Um, it was delayed for a number of reasons, some legitimate, some not so legitimate, um, including the electoral role and, and whatnot. But there was broad silence about the deeply flawed elections in 2010. Um, and then, you know, it was an approach, not just by the United States, because there were others as well, which was a kind of go easy on the government of Southern Sudan in the run up to the referendum. So we talked about corruption, weak institutions, violence, um, the lack of discussion about the past, even during the CPA negotiations, we tried to include um, a chapter on um, truth and reconciliation. We had various different titles. And initially both sides um, agreed that they should have some sort of a truth-telling process, but they couldn't agree on it in the end. And so we ended up kind of defaulting to um, the parties will, you know, shall agree at, you know, essentially at a later date on a process of reconciliation, truth telling, etc. So, you know, once a deal is done, they had no incentive to bring all of that up again and um, actually sort of litigate the past. But those wounds, including the wounds of 1991, when um, the SPLM split and you had um, Riak Mishar and, um, and some others um, splitting away and um, lots of massacres that occurred then, it, it's, it's never been addressed. And if we think about even um, the, the atrocities that occurred in 2013 and 14, not that they've completely, they have not stopped, but the um, African Union's um, commission um, did a lot of work on, on this and you know, wrote a fantastic um, uh, report, but you know, Again, what they said is this is still a, a blight on the country that um, has never been confronted. You know, there's a quote that they say, the ghosts of 1991 have to be confronted from multiple vantage points, political, healing, and, and reconciliation. So, you know, this is still really a, a, a great source of bitterness. And this is one of the reasons why, um, honestly, President Keir was able to manipulate the population uh, into going after certain ethnic communities because of the unsolved, un, um, non-addressed issues that stemmed from that split uh, with Riak Mishar, Lamakol, and, and others um, from 1991. So, um, and then when we think about when they did form the government sort of in 2016, and we sort of insisted that Riak Mishar go back and um, 
everything will be fine. We will, you know, continue to work on his security arrangements. And then in July, the, you know, fighting broke out again and Riyak Mashar was forced to flee into the bush. And the U.S. government said nothing about the government literally trying to kill Riyak Mashar, who was at that time still the vice president. Um, and, you know, when we don't speak up, when, when, when there's no recognition of that, despite the fact that, you know, on a diplomatic level, we went out to all the governments in the region saying, please encourage um, President Keir not to, you know, to stop his chief of uh, military, um, Paul Malong at the time, from, you know, continuing in the bush, for continuing to try to um, target him and his followers. And yet he then finally was rescued by the UN mission in Congo in a helicopter literally just minutes before the likelihood of the South Sudanese um, helicopter gunships would have actually taken, who knows whether he would have been killed, but striking him. Um, and no sanctions against the government, no sanctions, you know what I mean? No one even really said very much. Um, and finally, I'll just mention the, the fact that um, the peace agreement, the current one, um, also says that no one indicted or convicted by the hybrid court can be in the transitional government or any future government. Um, well, of course, the hybrid court is not established, and the government of S South Sudan is doing everything in its power to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, but this is not the only method of having some sort of accountability and justice. And it would have been a really great opportunity if we could have said anyone who is under even, you know, um, sanctions by the UN or the US or the European Union um, cannot serve in an interim government, even if the hybrid court's not been established. So I just wanted to mention some of those issues because um, I think this focuses a lot on um, some of those missed opportunities for insisting that accountability really be front and center and not pushed off after you have sort of peace or until after you have um, a full cessation of hostilities. So now to um, segue into the UN. So I had a couple of experiences with the UN. Um, I worked briefly for UNDP in Rwanda and um, going from the embassy in Kigali as political officer and human rights officer, also covering the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, um, and then going as the um, chief of the Justice and Human Rights Unit to UNDP, uh, it, was, um, it was hard. <laughs> it was really difficult because I found the uh, I found the rules to be quite opaque, whereas coming from the State Department or USAID, we may dislike the uh, the um, the structure or um, the bureaucracy, but you know what the rules are. 
And, you know, if you don't know them, of course, you, you can find them out. But um, you could not fake that you were stationed in Nairobi if you were really stationed in Kigali. Or you could not, you know, or fake it the other way around so that you could receive per diem saying that you were living in Kigali, but really you were living in Nairobi. Um, that was the hard, that was a hard pill to see how people could manipulate the system. Um, which again, I'm not saying that, you know, the U S government bureaucracy and rules and the fam are perfect, but those were, there were certain things you just, you really could not get away with. Um, and then heading up, um, going to the UN peacekeeping mission, um, in Sudan, it was exciting to create the unit from scratch, but at the same time, so this was heading up the um, rule of law and corrections advisory unit. So I had three offices. I had one in Juba, of course, um, and really one person, it wasn't even really an office in Darfur. But as you probably know, the CPA really didn't cover Darfur. So even though it's called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, um, the government of uh, Sudan insisted that we could only focus on the South, and then we were allowed also with um, the great negotiations by General Simbeo, the chief mediator for EGAD, to um, bring in uh, the three regions of, of Sudan, um, Abye, uh, Southern Kordofan, and Blue Nile. So we were able to get those included into the CPA, but Darfur was off limits. And um, um, but at the same time, what I, what I recognized at that time at UN peacekeeping missions, there was actually no real fund to do anything. So um, we were sort of a bunch of like literally an advisory unit. Um, and it was difficult to uh, try to advise. It wasn't so difficult to advise, let's say, the secretary, you know, the special representative for the secretary general. But um, you didn't really know where that was going to go. And when we tried to work with the, let's say, the judges, um, the Sudanese judges or the law society, there were no actual peacekeeping resources to do that. And so we would have to team up with UNDP, who is a voluntary fund. And so they didn't like the fact that they had raised the money for a project for, let's say, rule of law or training for just judges. But then we come hopping along and want to join the, you know, join in the parade. So it was a very different way of, of operating. And especially when um, it was difficult to have a bunch of very good lawyers and even, you know, a number who were not from sort of the um, American system, but, you know, civil law experts, even um, Islamic law experts and whatnot. But these were judges and lawyers who were older Sudanese, who, you know, how would you expect a 35-year-old, a 40-year-old even, to be able to really be in a position of authority with people who'd had so many more years of experience than they had. So I think those were some of the, um, 
some of the constraints. Sure, definitely. Thank you, Ambassador, for, well, I mean, this has been a great conversation, but we have one final question. Sure. So we're all Michigan grads here. Are there any fun memories you've had from undergrad? Or maybe, well, we should share such stories now that you'll be a professor there, but we'd love to hear it. Well, it's actually kind of funny. So as I moved here to Ann Arbor, um, I, when I was in, when I was an undergrad, uh, this would have been after my sophomore year, the summer of my sophomore year, I was an orientation leader. And I came across my little brochure that had me talking as an orientation leader and how we wanted this, you know, this students to have fun and whatnot and seeing my photo and my big hair and um, it, it, it brought back very fond memories and I am still in touch with a couple of the people that um, lived on my hall when I was an RA and um, I'm looking forward to getting together with them you know of, of course socially distant and whatnot but um, you know, I get text messages from them saying, you know, dear Mojo, you know, uh, people, because we lived in Mosher Jordan Hall. So, um, no, I, it, it was, um, it was an obviously fundamental in my life being here. I am such a huge fan of Michigan. Um, I had my pin, my Michigan pin with me. And we would watch games in all of the um, posts that, you know, that I've been in, including in, in South Sudan. Um, sometimes I did not like watching the games when we were on the losing end, but I would, you know, scream and shout and um, amongst the biggest fans out there. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Great to have a, a, a U of University of Michigan alum with us today. Um, they are certainly lucky to have you as a faculty member. So thank you again for taking the time. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, discuss a wide swath of issues. Uh, and I, I'm very certain that our audience will appreciate it. I hope so. And um, it's been my honor to be with you guys. And um, I look forward to just staying in touch. Well, for everyone listening, if you want to learn more about the issues discussed, check out our description and be sure to follow Ambassador Page on Twitter at Susan D. Page. And Ambassador, Ambassador Page, this is Javed Ali again. Um, look forward to seeing you on campus uh, shortly and we'll be teaching together. And for those of you who enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review. Make sure you follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod to get the latest updates. And this has been the Burnbag Podcast. Mm -hmm.